Strange Stories UK here again, Series 6, Episode 19. Calling this one, Hells Angels Fallout at Normanton, West Yorkshire. Well, this podcast is about an incident you're unlikely to be aware of happening in the summer of 1975. During the week of the 25th of July 1975, top of the pop charts was the Bay City Rollers. Jive Talking by the Bee Gees and 10cc's I'm Not In Love were also in the charts. The Yorkshire Ripper had just started his killing spree and inflation was running at over 24%. The British economy was in a mess. Jaws was the most popular film on release this month at the cinema and this podcast is about a murder between a couple of members of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang in Yorkshire. At around this time I was on a pony trekking holiday organised by the Youth Hostel Association and had a confrontation with some Hells Angels wannabes in a Yorkshire village. They definitely were not the real thing but the image was popular at the time with youth and I remember going to dances and clubs at the time and the bikers had a distinctive dance whereby they stood still with their hands on their hips, dipping their upper bodies in an assertive way to the music being played. Apart from my school friend, the rest of the group that I was pony trekking with were female, one of whom told off the bikers for not being sufficiently aware of the horses. A couple of the leather and jean-cladded youths decided to approach me holding bicycle change chains. I totally ignored them and they went away swinging their chains. In retrospect, even the wannabe bikers don't really engage with the general public. I suppose back then they would have fought amongst themselves or with skinhead gangs. The girl who told off the youths, although I never met her again and I've forgotten her name now, I saw her a couple of years later on University Challenge, the programme on television. Anyway, I digress, so back to the podcast. Hells Angels. They're a well-known motorcycle gang established in the USA after World War II. Early members were often ex-servicemen who found it difficult to cope with uneventful lives after experiencing war. So they came together at weekends to ride and drink hard. The gang, or the gangs, were run on military lines with various rules and codes of conduct. They were popularised at first in the Milo Brando film The Wild One, based loosely on an incident in a small town or small city called Hollister in California, which was wrecked by motorcycle gangs in 1947. The journalist and author Hunter S. Thompson did much to publicise the activities of Hells Angels after being sent by the magazine he was working for to prepare an article on them in the mid-1960s. Thompson rode with the Hells Angels for a year whilst writing a book about the gang. He had a love-hate relationship with the Hells Angels, saying about them, In terms of our great society, the Hells Angels and the Ilk are losers, dropouts, failures, malcontents. They are rejects looking for a way to get even with a world in which they are the only problem. They are so much aware of their mad dog reputation that they take a perverse kind of pleasure in being friendly. 
The Hells Angels were first said to become involved in crime to pay for their legal representation. But as the money proved useful, they continued in their criminal enterprises. It was during 1969 that the Hells Angels formed a corporation to protect their legitimate business interests, and this is when they trademarked their Death Head logo. The Hells Angels and rival motorcycle gangs spread abroad. The first Hells Angels approved gang in the UK being formed in 1969. This then spawned a number of other gangs similar to the Hells Angels. It's difficult to put a label on these gangs. Some groups claimed to be a group of enthusiasts who just liked to ride together and got involved in charity events, others being involved in criminal activity. But in the late 1960s, it was fashionable to wear a leather jacket or a jean jacket with the arms cut off to pretend to be a motorcycle biker. By 1995, the UK-based gangs numbered around 18. The Hells Angels gangs numbered about 18. They were said to be involved in drug dealing, prostitution, extortion and contract killing. Gangs such as the Hells Angels like to put up a shroud of secrecy and mystique about their club, with initiation ceremonies, rules, doctrines and rituals for, menu, uh, for members. I don't want to publicise them here or glorify them in any way. There's a great deal of terminology, such as patches, prospects and so on, which I suppose is supposed to suggest that the gangs are organised. I suppose it is something like the Freemasons. Different gangs are known as chapters. Each chapter has a president. The gang members wear patches, one of which will have the chapter name, the club colours and their territory. Various other patches can be earned in similar ways to... Well, they're similar to patches worn by the Boy Scouts on their uniforms. One of these patches is uh, two Nazi-style lightning bolts in the words, Filthy Few. The well-known Hells Angel, Sonny Barger, claimed that the patch was designed for those members who were first to arrive at a party and who were last to leave. But another interpretation of this patch is that they are awarded those Hells Angels who have murdered on behalf of the organisation usually in the presence of another member for cooperation. It is advisable not to ask a member of the Hells Angels what their patches represent, as they think that information is just for gang members, and it's nobody else's business. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, there were a number of copycat Hells Angels groups in the UK, who were invited to form the all England chapter of the Hells Angels. This led to a number of disputes with those who did not want to join or were not accepted for pretending to be part of the organisation. People in the UK had been killed by motorbike gangs, although it was generally gang-on-gang -gang violence. The affiliated Hells Angels groups being told by the gang's American leadership to challenge the rise of other gangs such as the Outlaws, Satan slaves, nomads, pagans, road tramps, bandidos and others. Violence and the making of reputations being important. There have been a few high profile murders between Hells Angels and other gangs as they struggled to gain prominence and control over territory. Control of the local drug supply was the usual reason for disputes although the need to remain the premier bike gang in a region was a strong motivation. 
Smaller bike groups that were liable to spring up were forced to join or affiliate with the dominant gang. Bikers in the UK argue that biker organisations were clubs and not gangs, although they do concede that members of the clubs are involved in crime. It is argued that members of the gangs include a lot of ex-military and ex-prisoners and that they attract people who have had troubled upbringings and who need some sort of structure uh, and in some ways the clubs act as surrogate families. This story, well, this podcast is based at Normanton, a small town in West Yorkshire and it involves people calling themselves Hells Angels from different chapters the Darlington chapter, the West Riding chapter, the Normanton chapter, known as the Nomads, and the Bridlington chapter. In fact, this is the last time the Bridlington chap- chapter is actually mentioned, although members were present during the incident described. On the night of Friday the 25th of July, a Darlington contingent of Hells Angels, who were Fred, Fred Musgrave, Leo Pert, also known as Chopper, who was the president of the Darlington Group, George Sweet William Mills and Hazel Close, who had once been Musgrave's partner, Musgrave's partner, but was now with Mills, they travelled down to Yorkshire on motorbikes. They had no change of clothing with them. In fact, they took nothing with them. They went to a disco at Wakefield on the Friday night where they had a lot to drink and they bedded down in a derelict house near Pontefract for the night. Fred Musgrave said he woke up with a hangover. He was wearing three pairs of jeans on top of each other. It organised it so he carried a bayonet in a scabbard in his right leg with a bayonet hang or hung from a large pocket. His jeans had been adapted so that he could carry the weapon. He said that he used the bayonet for chopping wood although it was usually mainly just for show. The bayonet had an 18-inch blade, and this had been newly sharpened, and he'd been showing the others at the Wakefield house on Saturday afternoon the bayonet. An 18-inch bayonet was huge. I can only think it was a French bayonet from World War I, or the 19th century, as there are no bayonets that large size used in the British Army. The next day was Saturday the 26th of July 1975. The Darlington contingent travelled to Normanton and at midday started drinking at the White Swan public house where there were members of other gangs drinking, the West Riding chapter of the Hells Angels, the Normanton chapter also known as the Nomads and the Bridlington chapter all being members of the Hells Angels. The West Riding chapter included Alan Shard or Sherd, also known as Jez or Jesus. He was a president or the gang leader. Ian Grimmer, also known as Reno, and David Parrison, also known as Fester, were amongst that group. The president of the Normanton group was Dave Turner, who had members of his group present. The Normanton chapter had been started by Turner after he met with the Darlington chapter and was inspired by the lifestyle of the Hells Angels and thought that Normanton needed a Hells Angels group and he was the man to start it. 
The three different groups met in the White Swan at Castleford Road at Normanton at around midday on Saturday the 26th of July. After lunchtime closing, pubs closed at 2.30 back in the 1970s, the Darlington group went to Terence Wakefield's house to spend the afternoon. Terence Wakefield was a member of the Nomads gang and he and his wife Patricia lived in Normanton and were friendly with the Darlington group. That evening they went to the Mexborough Arms public house, the Grey Horse public house and they ended up at the White Swan. At the White Swan, different motorcycle gangs had gathered in the lounge of the pub where a few played bar billiards and table football. At first the atmosphere was respectful and friendly, but then the heavy drinking loosened inhibitions and people started saying what they really thought. Alan Sherd of the West Riding chapter had drank about nine pints of beer and was rather drunk and behaving in a boorish manner. It seems that it's acceptable for male Hales Angels to kiss whilst greeting each other and Sherd was going around the pub kissing people and making it clear that he wanted sex with Hazel Close who was the ex-partner of Musgrave, Fred Musgrave and the current partner of George Mills of the Darlington Group. Jess had told Hazel that she was staying with him that night. Shirt, or Jez, Jez, was staring around the pub drinking from a bottle of wine and was involved in an argument with Fred Musgrave and manhandling him. Musgrave and Jez had argued about several topics, about the merits of Triumph motorbikes against that of BSA motorbikes, about living in a derelict building and other meaningless subjects. Those that knew Musgrave and Sherd sensed that they were coming to a confrontation. Musgrave had told the president of the Normington Nomads, Dave Turner, that he did not want trouble and he had come to Normington to make friends. Although he did ask, if, well, he did ask Turner if Jez was hard, meaning could he handle himself in a fight. So he must have been wondering that he may be involved in some sort of altercation. George Mills was worried about violence breaking out as a biker named Beza Bill had just come out of prison the previous day and was known to have a knife. He had been waving around and was drinking heavily. He was also a friend of Jez who had grabbed Mills by the lapels of his jacket and was acting aggressively. Terry Wakefield and his wife were associated with the Hells Angels Nomads gang based at Normanton. The president was Dave Turner and they were friends with Jez and his West Riding gang who were based only about 30 minutes away and knew each other well. They knew each other better than the Darlington gang who were based well over an hour away. Patricia Wakefield was making fun of Jez who was drunk and had a band of cloth around his head and was kissing other bikers. Patricia was sitting at the table with Jez who had a white cloth band around his head and she was asking him if he could do Kung Fu, to which he sprang up and made Kung Fu-like actions in the pub. Jess had already been warned by the landlord of the pub, Carol Doc Lancelot, about the language he was using. There seemed to be a tension rising in the pub. Jez was described as tall, muscular and broad. He was a formidable op opponent if it came to a fight. Jez in his drunk state was disrespecting the Darlington gang. 
He shouted in the pub talking about the Donington gang. Angels? They've never fucking seen angels. Terry Wakefield was playing bar billiards when there seemed to be a surge of people towards the, the bog, which was the term they used for the men's toilet. Jez had gone in first, quickly followed by Musgrave, who was holding some sort of weapon in his hand. This was obviously his bonnet. However, most of those in the pub claimed not to have seen a weapon. Grimmer, aka Reno, and others followed and went into the toilet. And then Musgrave came out holding the bayonet, which was soon taken off of him by Wakefield. Grimmer, who was known to usually carry a knife, claimed he'd left it outside the pub, where it was later found. Other non-biker witnesses in the White Swan that evening said that there were a number of Hells Angels in the bar, and suddenly four or five rushed into the toilets, barging in together, and they stayed there for a few minutes before coming out. It's not known what actually happened in the toilet, as the narrators cannot be fully trusted. They were in the toilet for some minutes. Fester claimed that he was in one of the cubicles, and although he heard a scuffle, he did not see what happened. What is known for sure was that Jez, or Shared, came out of the toilet bleeding from the stomach, being helped by Grimmer. Grimmer said that he saw Musgrave hit Jez, but did not see him stab him. It seemed that the bikers were all reluctant to give any information to the police and were vague about the evidence that they did give. It should be stated here that if you're a member of the Hells Angels gang, it's a rule not to cooperate with the police in any way. Nothing was known about the relationship between the West Riding bikers. It's not known how popular Jez Sherd was amongst them. In any way, they would have been reluctant to give evidence against another Hells Angel to the police. Later, when the case went to Leeds Crown Court, those who witnessed the events of the night thought that they may have seen Fred Musgrave jabbing the bayonet towards Jez. The story, or defence now being, that Jez ran forward towards Musgrave, who was holding his bayonet, and Jez impelled himself upon it. Jez was stabbed in the abdomen and died an hour later in hospital. Professor G at the hospital described the wound as an 8-inch stab wound, which passed through the liver, cutting the blood vein to that organ, passing through the diaphragm and into the right chest wall. Death was caused by loss of blood. There was another cut on, his, uh, on Jez's left wrist, which was thought to have been caused by the fatal thrust wound, so it was an effective defensive wound. Jess had 232 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood, which was described as a stage of confusion on the scale used to describe levels of intoxication. During the court case, the prosecution made the case that Musgrave's behaviour was not that of someone terrified for his safety, but more of that of a man who was spoiling for a fight and hopes to have the fight in the privacy of a toilet. If he had been defending himself, he would have run into the toilet after would he have run into the toilet after Shirt with a bayonet in his hand. Other witnesses at the court case said that Musgrave was walking fast, near to running, when he followed Jez into the toilet, but they claimed not to have seen any weapon. Fester Pearson seemed desperate to muddy the water. He said that 
he had missed seeing the fight in the toilet, only hearing it, as he had gone into a cubicle to relieve himself. He said he could not remember that much because he had been so drunk. But he claimed that when he came out of the toilets, he saw Jez lying on the floor, and he would shouted out, No one leaves this pub. But then he said a mystery person ran out, and although Pearson ran after him, he could not be caught. I'm supposing this mystery person had been invented to give the idea that somebody else could have stabbed Jez. I think it would be fair to say that the police found it difficult to obtain a clear picture of what happened in the pub due to the reluctance of people to tell tales and also the reputation of the West Yorkshire police at that time as being a corrupt force that were quick to twist anything said to what they wanted to hear. Chief Inspector Finlay and Detective Chief Superintendent Sills questioned Musgrave on the Sunday morning. Fred Musgrave was not very convincing in the interview with the police that morning. Jez had died. He said that he was in the Swan pub with his kid Jez. Jez was alright to start with, but then he started pushing him. So Musgrave said that he stuck him with his bayonet. So pretty much what was thought to have happened. When D.S. Sills pushed for further details, Musgrave said that he got mad after Jez got nasty with him and was threatening to have sex with Hazel. After the stabbing, he said he threw his bayonet over a hotel wall. When the police asked why he did not just have a fist fight, Musgrave said that if he did not stab Jez, he would have kept coming at him, and as he was not as broad as Jez, he admitted that in a fist fight, Jez would have probably got the better of him. Musgrave admitted to intending to stab Jez, but did not mean to seriously hurt him. When the police asked, why didn't you just walk away instead of following Jez into the toilet? Musgrave said he couldn't do that. And anyway, some of Jez's mates had knives, and they would have done him if he had not done Jez first. During this interview with the police, Musgrave had, did not know that Jez was now dead. The interview that he gave the police meant his defence of an accident was not going to work. A good example of why defendants are advised to answer no comment during a police interview. Although the defence team had tried to argue that Musgrave had no sleep before his interview, as he'd been walking all night. He'd been picked up by the police hitchhiking along the B1224 York to Weatherby Road at around 8.40am by marked police cars. He also said he'd been drunk when the incident had taken place and had poor recollection. Hazel Close told the police that she had lived with Musgrave but had left as he was too possessive. He didn't like her talking to other men. She had travelled to Normanton on the Friday with George Mills in the sidecar of his motorcycle combination. She spent the Saturday afternoon at the Wakefields house and then gone out drinking. She had seen Jez in one of the public houses that she visited. He was very drunk, staggering, shouting aggressively, aggravating everybody, picking on them. At the White Swan he behaved to her in a very offensive manner. manner. He kept saying, You're coming with me to no man's, which she understood to mean he wanted intercourse with her. She said that Musgrave could hear all this, and he didn't look very happy about it. She added that 
Jez stood up and went over to Musgrave and tapped him on the shoulder. He made a gesture with his hand to go with him to the toilet. So they both went there, presumably for a fight. She told the police in her original statement that Musgrave was livid and saw him pull his bayonet from the scabbard on the way to the toilet. Although at the court case she said that she did not know if Musgrave had anything in his hand. As a result of this change of recollection, her evidence did not carry much weight during the court case. Although she also claimed that she was forced to sign the statement without checking it through when interviewed by the police. To be fair, knowing the reputation of the West Yorkshire Police in the 1970s, it is possible that their comments, or Hazel's comments about the statements that she made, could well have been true, and that the police were just trying to get her to write what they wanted her to write. So, just to be clear, at the court case, Musgrave was now saying that the stabbing had been an unfortunate accident, as Jess Sherd had run onto the bayment, bayonet which Musgrave had no intention of using against him. The prosecution were now asking Musgrave, sarcastically, if Jess had committed suicide by walking onto the bayonet which he was holding. Musgrave was trying to explain that when he told the police that he'd stabbed Jess, what he actually meant was that Jess had walked onto the bayonet, and that's what he had meant by stabbing. Musgrave was saying now that the reason he had the bayonet was to open tins and to show off. He said it wasn't him that sharpened the bayonet, but George Mills, who wanted to cut some rope with it. He said that as he had not brought a bag with him, he had nowhere where he could leave the bayonet, and that's the reason why he was carrying it on his person. Musgrave said it was not difficult to sit down with a bayonet hidden in his jeans that he was wearing, but he carried it as he knew other people that were with him that night had weapons with them. In particular, Beezer Bill in the White Swan, who was waving a knife about, which he kept in his waistband. On the Saturday night, Beezer Bill and Jez embraced each other several times, and it was possible that Bill had passed Jez a knife just before the fight in the toilet. The prosecution argued convincingly that Musgrave had not given the impression of a man who was acting in self-defence or had been terrified of being knifed by Jez, as the defence had argued that Jez may have been outpassed the knife by one of his friends. The story of the stabbing being an accident was not convincing, and despite the reluctance of witnesses to help the police and to tell the truth, it seemed that Musgrave had been angry and had intended to wound Jez. Musgrave claimed that was provocation. When Jez was saying to Hazel, you come with me, Musgrave had told Jez, you touch her and I'll kill you. During the court case, Musgrave had admitted that he was in a really bad temper, and that's why he pulled out his bayonet and stabbed him to stop him. I think he said he was so mad he didn't know what he was doing, so he just did him. Somebody had pulled him off and then pushed him out. I think that Reno, was Grimmer, was there, but I can't remember who else. In his summing up, the judge told the jury that they had to decide whether Musgrave had provoked, uh, been provoked to commit a crime of passion, which would have been manslaughter, or whether he meant to cause serious injury with his sharpened blade, which would be murder. The jury took in the bayonet and scabbard and leather jacket and an original statement to Musgrave into the jury room 
when trying to come to a verdict. They also asked the judge to give clarification of the legal definitions of a reasonable provocation and what constitutes a murder and what constitutes uh, manslaughter. The jury could not decide on a unanimous verdict, so the judge said he was settled for a majority verdict of at least 10 against 2. They then found Fred Musgrave guilty of murder and carrying a weapon. 11 jurors against 1. Musgrave, who was aged 21, was given a life sentence. There was no further information on Musgrave, who would have probably been released in the late 1980s. Biker gangs such as the Hells Angels do, do tend to stand, stay under the radar, although there are occasional flare-ups which involve extreme violence when the gangs fight against each other. Today in the UK, the main biker gangs are the Hells Angels, they have charters across England, Wales and Ireland, and they are particularly strong in South East England. There are the Bandidos, they are across England, but strongly associated with Devon and Cornwall. There's the Outlaw Gang, they're across England and Wales, but they are particularly associated in the Midlands. The Vikings are associated with the Surrey area, also I think they have some presence in Ireland. Satan's Slaves, who were, were founded in Yorkshire, and are strongly associated with the north of England and Scotland. And finally, they're the Blue Angels, who were founded in Glasgow in the 1960s. These bikers formed an alliance with London's Road Rats in the 1970s. These, gang make, uh, these gangs make loose alliances and sometimes make newspapers when they kill each other. But as a general rule, they leave the public alone. The biker gangs are more significant in smaller towns and rural areas. They don't have much impact on organised crime in urban areas. Well, I suppose their appearance makes it difficult for them to blend in. Nevertheless, they have a strong secretive international networks and close links with biker gangs or chapters or clubs in other countries around the world. They are described by Interpol as one of Europe's fastest growing criminal networks. The biker gangs argue that the police are being paranoid and just because they adopt an alternative lifestyle and are a visible group, they are an easy target. Satan Slaves Gang formed in Yorkshire in the mid-1960s before spreading to other parts of the country and abroad. These motorcycle gangs are best avoided, having radically different lifestyles to most. To give an example, in 1983 there was a fatal clash between members of the Road Rats and Satan Slaves as they were queuing up at a biker event at Cookham in Berkshire to gang-rape a woman who had been staked out in a tent. During the resulting mass brawl involving shotguns, knives, baseball bats, axes and the like, two road rat members were killed as the Satan slave members were forced into a barn which was then set alight. It was the Hells Angels who intervened the bodies of the dead and injured were dumped at the local hospitals as the police arrested over 50 people. Other incidents of shootings and bombings have made the press, as there are many other stories that could be told. Other new stories involving the Hells Angels have them raising money and awareness for various charities and good works. In recent years, one of the main Hells Angels yearly events is the Bulldog Bash held near Stratford-upon-Avon 
the birthplace of William Shakespeare. I think the town prefers to forget the goings-on at the yearly Hells Angels event, which makes them a lot of money each year, selling the rights to vendors of food and drink, in other stores such as tattoo parlours, uh, shopping market and other activities. It's said to bring the Hells Angels almost well, well over a million pounds each year. The event goes on for four days, and each evening there is a large musical stage. After midnight, there's the Bulldogs' well-known novelty acts, of which of least said the better. During the day, there's a motorcycle drag strip named Run What You Brung, where bikers can show off their machines and skills. The Bulldog bashes police by the Hells Angels, and according to Warwickshire Police, it is the least troublesome event, or the least troublesome public event, held in the county although it is suggested that any trouble is not reported but dealt with by the Hells Angels in their own way. Well, so ends another podcast, so thank you for Damselfly for the background music. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, goodbye.